All right, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Halfway through. Excited about that. The purpose of our studies in this epistle have been to discover the fullness of God in the average Christian life. I don't mean average in a, uh, in a sense of quality, but an average in the sense of uh, every one of us as an average Christian living here uh, in Kings County. As we open up the Bible, we find very quickly that God intends that every single believer has a life filled up with his spirit and all that comes alongside that. If we aren't feeling feeling this sort of filling, uh, then there's something that we can and there's something that we should do about it. It shouldn't sit well with us if we um, feel stalled or, or feel empty in our spiritual walk. And this has been Paul's point so far in this book. We're halfway through his letter here, and, and what he's been saying is that there is a work and a power and a completion that God is working on in our lives as long as we stay willing and open to him. Uh, Paul's writing to teach us about pressing on and moving forward in the faith and not stagnating, not regressing, but actually growing and developing under the power of the Spirit, moving past obstacles and difficulties and realizing what this life here on the earth is all about and what we're headed towards. And uh, this is a really great book because Paul goes back and forth writing to us as individuals and as a church gathered together. He's giving us devotional insight and practical insight. He wants our love to abound so that our testimony will endure and our spiritual fruit will be added to our lives. And, he's, and he expects us to be a characteristic of every single one of our relationships with the Lord. This is what he expected the Christian life to be for everyone. And so the first two chapters, he says, look at me, look at Jesus, look at Timothy, look at Epaphroditus. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what we can expect in this life. This is what we should do as believers in these different situations. And he's showing us how God takes a disciple and awakens within him a desire to minister and a desire to be forever with the Lord and and focuses our hearts in those ways. And again and again, Paul is teaching us regarding our future in heaven where our fullness is finally made complete. And he's teaching us about our conduct as Christians in the church, in our relationships as representatives of Jesus Christ, uh, who, are cha- who are charged with the task of carrying out the gospel and carrying out God's will wherever we are sent by him. And so it's a really inspiring, really uh, exciting book for people who desire to grow in their walk with the Lord. And so now finally, Paul gets to his conclusion, sort of. Uh, I say sort of because it's interesting. You'll notice that in chapter 3, verse 1, here we're going to read, Finally, brethren, which signifies that he is closing things up. But then again in chapter 4, verse 8, we read the same thing. Finally, brethren. Uh, Now, epistles are broken up generally into four main sections. The introduction, where the writer introduces himself and greets the recipients of the letter. Then you have the statement of purpose, where the writer explains why he's writing the letter. Then you have the main teaching, where the writer explores the topic or the issue. And then you have the closing, where the writer concludes and makes some personal remarks, usually to specific people. Now, nearly all epistles break up this way. Hebrews doesn't because we're not given an introduction at the beginning. But that's kind of an outline that you can see in just about all of the epistles. But here, Paul seems like it uh, he's wrapping things up. Finally, brethren, moving into his conclusion. Uh, but then for an entire chapter, he launches into this side idea um, H.A. Ironside refers to it as a parenthetical teaching, you know, where Paul would often in his writings say, okay, I'm, I'm going to end what I'm talking about, by the way, and then just a huge section in the parentheses there. He launches into this new idea. 
And what we see there is a wonderful example of a couple things. First, we see a really great example of how the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the Bible. Uh, Not dictating words to them as if they were just a human typewriter, but moving through them and inspiring them when they were penning the scriptures. Using their personalities and their styles to give us God's word. But we also see how natural a thing it is when the Holy Spirit impresses on us as an individual something that we hadn't planned before. As we're just living submitted to the Holy Spirit and being under his influence, being drunk with the Spirit of God and allowing him to control uh, not only our decision making, but also our thought life altogether. Seeing how natural it is as we uh, wait on the Lord and he impresses on us things that he wants us to do or to say uh, or to work in. You know, here Paul intended to finish up this letter in chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, But the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 I'm going to move you to add more treasures. And really, man, in this chapter, this parenthetical chapter, we're given such treasures of chapter 3 and the first seven verses of chapter 4. Some of the most famous uh, words of all scripture. It was an additional message that the Lord uh, sent to the Philippians and to all of us because it was something that we needed to hear. And it all centers around this opening verse of chapter 3, which is our text. Let me read it. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Uh, Again, Paul is going to teach us in this next section about our future reward in heaven, as he's already done. Our conduct as Christians, as he's already done. Our unity in the church, as he's already done. Our pressing on. And it all centers around this key phrase, to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, That word rejoice is used seven times In this book alone, I mean, it was a big theme, four chapters in it, but Paul uses it seven times. And here in verse one, we see that the command to rejoice in the Lord is a needful thing that we all must be reminded of continually. Um, Because apparently Paul had already written letters to the Philippians. He said, look, I'm writing the same stuff to you that I wrote before. And so, uh, you know, commentators would point out that... um, Paul was active in writing letters, if we use the Bible you know, timeline, for about 16 years, writing to the churches and founding churches and doing all this, and we have 13 letters. And so obviously Paul wrote lots and lots of letters, uh, many of them were not added to the canon of scripture, um, but it's interesting, he wrote letters to the Philippians already, he had a relationship with them, and he says that he's writing the same things to them and that that's a needful thing. For that group of people. And he explains it's not a bad thing when teachers or preachers repeat the basic tenets of the faith. And um, that's an important, important uh, uh, idea to hold on to. Because the foundational points of Christianity have to be reiterated in our minds again and again and again. Because that is what creates a secure faith. A faith that is grounded and anchored in truth. Not just in our feeling or not just in some wind of opinion that's influencing us at the time by a friend or some other teacher or whatever. We need to be fixed on the truth which God has revealed to us. And we need to purpose in our personal lives to fasten ourselves to the truth of God's word and the foundational tenets of faith. And repair any ties uh, to that truth that are being weakened or frayed by the enemy or by weariness or by doubt. If we move off of the foundation... We're in trouble. 
We can't start building our house on sand. We need to stay on the foundational tenets of faith and rehearse them and repeat them, reiterate them to ourselves again and again and again. Paul says, this is safe for you. This is what you need to do. And it's good for me as a teacher, Paul says, to uh, uh, repeat these things to you. I love this quote from Bible commentator William Barclay. He says, it may well be one of our great faults, uh, our desire for novelty. The great saving truths of Christianity do not change, and we cannot hear them too often. We do not tire of the foods which are essentials of life. We expect to eat bread and to drink water every day. And we must listen again and again to the truth which is the bread and the water of life. We may enjoy the fancy things at mealtimes, but it is the basic foods on which we live. And so the food analogy is a great one. And we need to keep that in mind as we are studying the word and, and moving forward in our faith and, and focusing our attention on spiritual things. And so in this text, the key to securing our faith is to be men who rejoice. The word in the Greek there means to be full of cheer, to be happy, to be well, and to thrive. And I really like that definition there, to thrive. As I said, the word is used a number of times in this letter alone, seven different times. And so from this epistle, we can see how we are to rejoice as people. If we're recipients of this letter that Paul is writing, we can look and see, okay, Paul is centering his thoughts here on the fact that we need to rejoice. And so what does that mean and how do we rejoice in the Lord? Uh, first, in our text, the verse one, it says we are to rejoice in the Lord. If you desire fullness in your life, you, you have to find satisfaction in Christ Jesus. We've seen this not only taught, but demonstrated in the life of Paul, who was able to find contentment in any circumstance. He was a man who counted everything else in the world as rubbish as compared to knowing the Lord in a personal way, in a personal, intimate relationship. He said, nothing else matters to me other than the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so as a Christian here in the 21st century, if we compartmentalize our faith, if we just make our Christianity, our relationship with God, a, a small part of our life, if we make it an adjective for ourselves rather than a verb of how we act and what we do, then we are not going to know satisfaction here on the earth. That's just the deal. Uh, Jim Carrey is credited as saying this. He said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that it's not the answer. And a really interesting perspective there. We've seen this already in our studies and throughout God's word. That a Christian, no person, but especially a Christian, cannot find satisfaction unless they are willing to abandon themselves to the Lord and to his will. You know, uh, the perfect example is the rich young ruler. He had this desire, you know, and he said, okay, I want to follow you, Lord, and I'm, I'm willing to do these things. And, and Jesus said, okay, you have to abandon yourself to me. I want you to go and do this and forsake everything to follow me. And what happened? Did that man find satisfaction? No, he went away sorrowful. Because he was trying to uh, uh, take hold of his wealth and his possessions, but also he had this desire to follow after Jesus, and you can't have both. You can't serve both of those masters. Peace and contentment and confidence and happiness, those things that we desire and that everyone wants in their lives, they're found when we are thriving in the Lord, when we're rejoicing in his presence. When we're moving out our desire for temporal things and for fleshly things and replacing them with the desires of heaven, rather letting the Holy Spirit replace them with the desires of heaven. It's a very simple teaching, but it's one that needs to, repeated, need to be repeated in our minds every day. That we wake up and we think, yeah, Lord, I want what you want. 
it, you know, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. So, man, Lord, I want what you want. So take care of my desires in my heart and take care of my motives and clean out that stuff and cut it away so that I can desire you and rejoice in you. Now, second, in Philippians, we are to rejoice in the preaching of Christ. We've already seen this. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul explains that a disciple rejoices when the gospel is preached and souls are saved. That's that famous passage where he's like, okay, some people are preaching you know, Christ as in you know, to kind of give me, you know, uh, to try to offend me and try to show me up. Others are preaching out of sincerity. Either way, I rejoice because Christ is preached. And so if we have no passion as individuals, as Christians, for saving souls, then I would dare to say that our relationship with Christ is dormant and in need of revival. We need to rejoice in the preaching of Christ. Because the purpose of our Christianity is not to just gather together as some sort of exclusive social club, you know. It's not a bless me club. The purpose is to discover who God is and what he does and then to bring others into that saving knowledge so that they can be spared the destruction that is coming for them. We need to always keep evangelism at the forefront of our ministry and our activity, both as individuals and as a church. We rejoice in the preaching of Christ Jesus by participating in it as godly witnesses, by living a Christian life in front of the people of this world, and then also by supporting the church at large, which is sending out laborers into that harvest that Jesus talked about. That's how we rejoice in evangelism. Third, we are to rejoice when God uses us as sacrificial servants for his work. We saw this in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. That God would look down on me and my imperfection and all my unworthiness and say, yeah, I want to use you to impact lives. And I want to use you to make a difference. I have a task set aside, fashioned for you to participate in. Do you want to do that? Man, uh, that should bring me cheer and joy. It should bring a vigor to my heart and my day-to-day living to think that the Lord would look down and say, yes, I want to use you as a sacrificial servant. Now, oftentimes, I know I let the opposite happen. I'll get annoyed when God asks me to do something or when I get treated like a servant. But to be an emissary for the King of Heaven is, is really something unfathomable. Unfathomable. Uh, God, in His grace and in His mercy, He uses you and He uses me to bless the world and extend eternity to them as long as we are willing to participate. Fourth, Paul indicates that in Philippians that we should rejoice in the unity of the church. talked about that in chapter 2. We're going to talk about it more in chapter 4. It talks about our accord together as Christians in the local churches. Which means that we are to thrive together as a biblical church, carrying out the roles and the mission and the corporate worship that God reveals to us in the scriptures, being grounded in the foundational truths revealed to us by God. Church is not created to make you happy, uh, which is interesting because we're talking about rejoicing and thriving and, and finding that satisfaction. But church was not created to make you and me happy. Instead, we find spiritual happiness and contentment by being a part of Christ's body in the way that he intends, which is being unified with others, by serving others, by putting others before ourselves, by being discipled and discipling others, by praying together and studying together, ministering together. That's the church, uh, that we be serving one another and building up one another and laying down ourselves on behalf of one another. That's the purpose of the church and to worship the Lord. The byproduct of that is spiritual contentment. But the church is not that we come in for some sort of entertainment. We don't come into the church to be pandered to. 
Uh, unity within the church, biblically speaking, means following biblical examples that we read about and finding our place in the body of believers so that we can actually serve one another, not be served, and build something together as we worship the Lord here on the earth. And then fifth, we are to rejoice in ministry. Ministry encompasses evangelism and what happens in a local church and all those sorts of things. But Paul makes a special mention in verse 10 of chapter 4, we're going to see, where he talks about the physical ministry that the church in Philippi was participating in and how he rejoiced in it. The fact that Christians will actually go out and help others, actually do something, showing compassion to people, loving people. That's how we thrive in the ministry. That's how we rejoice in the ministry, by presenting ourselves to God and actually saying, okay, here I am, Lord, send me. I will go and do the things that you want me to do. I will participate in the ministry. I'll carry the message. I'll carry the compassion. I'll carry the help that you have provided by supporting those who are being sent and by asking God to give us a burden for our community and for people and places elsewhere in the world. God moved in Paul to teach us that spiritual safety is found when we rejoice in the Lord and all that entails. But we're never left without practical instruction on how to actually start doing that. We've already seen the example of Christ and of Paul and of Timothy and so many others, even in just this book. And so when we look at these men who discovered a life filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to ask ourselves this question. What am I doing? What are we doing? Are we doing anything that these guys did? Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Jesus Christ. Am I doing anything that they did? Do, I, do we have a biblical mindset at all? Do I have a biblical desire at all? Do I have biblical activities going on in my life at all? Do I want to spend time with God? Do I care about His church? Do I have compassion on the lost and the suffering people of the world? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves to evaluate uh, our intimacy with the Lord and evaluate how much we're rejoicing in the Lord and His things. If we do not rejoice in the Lord, if we're not thriving in Him, then we are not going to be able to withstand the blows of life and we're not going to be useful in the kingdom as the Lord desires. Life on the earth is a full contact sport. Okay, It's a battle, especially now that we are citizens of heaven and we're living in a world that is ruled by Satan. Okay, So it is rough out there and there's blows coming for us. And so Nehemiah, what did he say? He said, the joy of the Lord is our strength, period. Paul said, you know, it's our safety here in this text. Jesus Christ said that no one would be able to take a Christian's joy from them in the Gospel of John. And so if we stall in our walk with the Lord, if we feel a disconnect from God, we need to understand that our decisions and our actions have led to that disconnect. But more importantly than that, we need to understand that we can return to the dynamic Christian life that God is offering us as long as we're willing to take the road of a disciple, as long as we're willing to actually rise and follow. If we find ourselves with a lack of joy in these areas, the first place to look is at our personal holiness. H.I. Ironside said, holiness and happiness are intimately linked. And that's an important thing to remember. Because now that we're Christians, we can't live half in the world and half in the kingdom. It creates vexation. It creates problems. That's what Lot tried to do. You know, he made carnal decisions. He tried to take the path of worldliness. The New Testament calls him a righteous man. But what happened when he tried to do both, you know, he tried to be a righteous man living in carnality? Well, it caused huge, great destruction in his life and in his family. But the New Testament also reveals that his life was full of vexation and grief. That's not what God wanted for Lot. That's not what God wants for us. But his decision led him away from the fullness of the Spirit and into the desolation of carnality. And so the same trap is laid for you and for me today. So we need to acquire holiness and you will discover spiritual happiness. 
Set apart your life to serve the Lord wherever he has you, whatever he has for you. See how you can draw nearer to him as an individual, how you can preach his saving love by just living the Christian life. Make yourself available to be used by God to further his kingdom by sending your support or by being sent yourself. Unify yourself in the church. Find your God-ordained place in it. Value ministry. Participate in reaching out to those far and near. Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes things that are sown to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations.